You're listening to a Dwell Community Church production. If you'd like to check out more resources, visit dwellcc.org. Welcome again to Dwell Community Church, and we are going to be looking at Mark chapter 9. And this is where Jesus talks about greatness in the kingdom that he will establish. Now, Jesus gives us really two things that Mark true greatness in the kingdom, and that is faith and secondly, humility. And the way that he teaches us this is through two different stories that we're going to be looking at. So why don't we look at Mark 9, starting in verse 14. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. Remember the context here. Last week, Jesus, Peter, James, and John ascended this mountain, and Peter, James, and John saw Jesus transfigured. So now as they were descending the mountain, they saw that there was a large crowd gathered around the other disciples who were left behind and the teachers of the law who were arguing with them. It's not really clear from parallel accounts what they were actually arguing about. What What I think is maybe they were arguing about whether Jesus was actually the Messiah. Either way, as soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about? Jesus asked. A man in the crowd answered, Jesus, teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground, and he foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. One thing to notice is that skeptics of the Bible often look at some of these ancient stories and say, this is ancient man trying to explain things that they didn't understand by sort of saying it was a spiritual ailment. So really what this kid was experiencing was epilepsy. But there are passages like Matthew 4, verse 24, that differentiate physical illnesses with spiritual maladies. We're told that the people brought to him all who were ill, those who are suffering with various diseases and pains, and demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. So this passage and others like it point out that There are physical ailments that we face, but also we shouldn't discount the fact that there are also spiritual ailments that plague us as well. Jesus takes the disciples' unbelief, their lack of faith, which prevented them from healing this young boy, and applies it to the crowds. He says, you unbelieving generation, how long shall I put up with you? How long shall I stay with you? He says, bring the boy to me. And so they brought him. And when the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has it been like this? From childhood, the man answered. It has often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. So the man says, if you can do anything, you can sense the desperation in his voice. 
I'm certain that this man, because of his son's condition, probably sought help from all the doctors he could possibly find, and yet felt frustrated, discouraged, because none of them could help his son out. And so they probably heard, he probably heard about Jesus and how he had healed many people, and so he traveled with his son to see whether or not Jesus could help him, and he encountered instead Jesus' disciples who were unable to cast this demon out of his son. And so you can imagine the kind of desperation that he felt. I mean, imagine if your family member or a loved one had an ailment that was debilitating and you sought after doctors and experts who couldn't help your loved one, you would feel a sense of helplessness. You would feel a sense of desperation to do whatever it took to help your loved one. And that's exactly where this man was at. Jesus seizes upon this man's statement, if, if you can, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. This man gives us maybe one of the most fascinating responses in the entire Bible. I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. It's interesting that in the Greek, this statement sounds somewhat paradoxical. The word believe is the Greek word pisteo. And the word for unbelief is a, meaning the opposite, pisteo. So essentially what he's saying is, I do believe, but I also don't believe which sounds contradictory, but it actually fits with how we often feel. Where on the one hand, we do have faith. We do trust God at some level, but also doubts flood our mind. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked and convulsed him violently and finally came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. Jesus' response by healing this man's son tells you a little bit about how he viewed this man's faith. That even though he had doubts, even though he had many questions, his faith was enough. Now I want to go back in our passage and I want to sort of examine and look at this statement. I do believe, and, but help me in my, overcome my unbelief. I know as a very young Christian, I remember reading for this for the very first time and just sort of locking in on this statement because it sort of ex, it described the kind of experience I had for the first few years of walking with God where there were incredible peaks and valleys in my walk with God, where on the one hand I had belief, I had faith, I believed in God, I knew that I had a relationship with him, but I also had doubts that plagued me. So I want to give you some observations about faith and doubt that I think might be helpful. First of all, biblical faith isn't the same as blind faith. Biblical faith isn't wishful thinking, it isn't 
believing in something in spite of the overwhelming evidence that it's not true. We see, for example, Mark Twain says that faith is trying to believe what you know ain't so. Well, actually, biblical faith is just the opposite of that. Hebrews 11 verse 1 says that faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance of what we do not see. So there's actual confidence in the hope and assurance that we have. In other words, faith is more like trust that we place in something that is objectively true. Contrary to what a lot of people think, Christianity isn't this faith that lacks evidence. I've studied Christianity for many, many years now. And over the years, as I learn more and more about God and what he says, one of the things that I'm struck by is how much evidence there is for, for belief in Christ. Secondly, faith can and often does coexist with doubt. I think that a lot of times we have faith, but something will happen where doubt will start to flood our minds. And this is a common occurrence that, that doesn't just happen when it comes to walking with God. I remember when I first got married to my wife, we went on our honeymoon to San Francisco. And both of us really love art, so we went to the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. And when you enter the museum, there's this incredible atrium that's five stories high. So we decided we were going to go up to the fourth floor and we were going to actually go and look down onto the atrium. And I don't know if you know this about me, but I have a deathly fear of heights. And so as I was walking up to the railing to go look over the banister and see the atrium, a lot of doubt started to flood my mind. Um, as I started to walk up to the railing, I started to think to myself, okay, there's pretty good evidence to believe that this railing is secure. I mean, there are dozens of people who are leaning against it. It's not collapsing. Uh, it's constructed of steel, so it seems structurally pretty strong. But even though I had that evidence, as I walked up to the railing, do you think that my level of confidence and feeling of safety increased, or do you think it decreased? It decreased. As I walked up to the railing, doubt started to flood my mind. I started envisioning different scenarios. I thought, what if I leaned up against this railing, and at the very same time, an incredibly large man happened to be leaning at the very same time, and the whole structure collapsed? Or what if I decided that I was going to lean over the railing to look down on the atrium and a large bird that somehow got into the Museum of Art swooped down and knocked me over the railing plummeting to my death and I envision my body splattered on the ground and my wife without a husband dating other men, wealthier, taller, better looking men, all of whom I don't, who I, who I didn't uh, actually approve of. And so, you know, when you think about faith, it's sort of the same way, where we may place our trust in what is objectively true in God's word, but at the very same time, things may happen in our lives where doubt starts to cloud our minds, and we start to feel like maybe something is wrong. And yet, one of the things that we need to realize is that, you know, in the same way 
that objectively nothing had changed in terms of my level of certainty in hanging over the railing or leaning up against it. That in the same way, we may have evidence and have growing evidence of God and his existence, but that's not going to necessarily stop the doubts from entering our minds. And that's okay. I think having doubts, though, isn't the same as refusal to believe. We need to sort of differentiate these two things. Because when we talk about having some doubts, we're still taking the posture of faith where we're giving God the benefit of the doubt, that we're willing to accept reasonable answers to questions that we may have. Whereas when we decide that we are going to refuse to believe, that we are putting forward a criteria of certainty where essentially God is on trial and he has to prove to me that he's real and that what he's saying is actually true. That's, that's the opposite of having faith. That's really unbelief. Now, it's important for us to see as well that we can't control how much faith we have. That um, really, when we look at circumstances in our lives that seem adverse, or when we look at unanswered prayers, we need to be able to resist the impulse to, to feel like, you know, what I need to do is I just need to uh, squeeze out a little bit more faith and then maybe God will answer my prayers. It doesn't work that way. In fact, that sort of thinking is actually toxic to our faith. The thing is, God he takes full responsibility for growing our faith. He's going to put in our lives circumstances and small steps of faith that he wants us to respond to. And when we decide that we're going to trust him in his power and we see him come through, that he actually is able to build up our faith and grow it over time. But... Even though we can't control how much faith we have, we can control our willingness to act on what is true. You will find that as time goes on, there are, there are instances where following God and trusting in Him, placing our faith in Him, actually contradicts how we feel. And it's important in those moments which are decisive for us to trust in God, to take that small step of faith even though our feelings aren't quite there. And what we'll often find is that our feelings will follow afterward. Let's go back to our passage, verse 28 and 29. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can only come out by prayer. So really, the contrast between this man's imperfect faith and the disciples' lack of faith shows us the kind of faith that God wants from us. This man, even though he had a little bit of faith, was enough for Jesus. But the disciples' lack of faith wasn't enough to carry out this miraculous feat. I think when we look at the disciples, it's a little bit confusing to figure out why they were unable to drive out this evil spirit it's possible that the disciples were relying on past success. 
Earlier in Mark chapter 6, Jesus sent out the 12 and he says, I want you to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom and I want you to heal diseases and I want you to cast out demons. And to the surprise of the disciples, they went out and it was exactly as Jesus had said. And so it might be that the disciples were actually starting to rely on their past success and they believed that if they simply said to this boy, in the name of Jesus, come out of him, that that would be enough not realizing that it was actually God's power that was doing that. And we'll experience that as well, where as we try our hand at serving God, God will do some amazing things. We'll see some success in trying to serve him. And what can often happen is that we start to believe that we are the special ingredient in God's special sauce. And what God will often do in those cases is he will allow failure to come into our lives to humble us and show us that really it's by his power and by his might that he is able to accomplish his work. Also, I think it's important to see that God doesn't require a large amount of faith. In Matthew's parallel account, in Matthew 17, Jesus adds, he says, if you had faith, even the size of a mustard seed, a grain, he says, you could look at this mountain and say, go over there, and it will listen. And so what Jesus was emphasizing is that it's, it's not about how much faith you have. It's about the object of your faith. And so really, God isn't concerned so much with how great your faith is. He's more concerned about the object of faith in which you place your faith in. And so one of the things that we have to come to terms with is that God, he cares about us putting our faith in what's true. And that really is one of the aspects that causes us to be great in his kingdom. Let's look at our second story where Jesus highlights humility as one of the great characteristics of his kingdom. In verse 30, they left that place and passed through Galilee, and they came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had been arguing about who was going to be the greatest. In Luke chapter 9, the parallel account, Luke adds this detail. He knew what they were thinking, so he asked, what were you arguing about on the road? And the disciples knew that Jesus was the Messiah, but they were mistaken about what his mission was on earth at this coming. And so they believed that he was going to establish his kingship and that he was going to bring in a whole new administration. So what they were arguing about was, who was going to take the top spot next to Jesus at his right hand? Who was going to be the greatest? And when Jesus realized that that was what they were arguing about, he asked them, he says, what were you arguing about? To which they were saying, well, uh, nothing. And they grew quiet because of their embarrassment. Sitting down, Jesus called the 12 disciples and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. So, Jesus is turning their idea of greatness on its head. They think being great is about occupying a position of prominence, getting underlings and people to do things for you. 
Instead, Jesus says, if you want to be first in my kingdom, you're going to have to be last. You're going to have to be servant of all. And as we'll see, that's exactly what Jesus demonstrated through his own life and death. And he takes a child and uses this child as an object lesson. He placed the child among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. So he takes this little child and he says, listen, you need to become not only like this child, but you need to welcome a little child like this if you want to be great. Now, in the ancient world, children were not regarded in the way that we regard children today. You know, today, whenever we see a little child, we celebrate the child and you know, whenever it does something small, you know, we clap and we say, how wonderful that is. In the ancient world, children were looked at as a nuisance. They were insignificant. In fact, in the Jewish writings, the Talmud, we're told, morning sleep, midday wine, chattering with children, and lingering in places where common people assemble. This is the way to ruin your life. Wait, that's like a typical day for me. But in their thinking... They looked at you associating with lowly people, the vulnerable, the common people, as a negative thing. Jesus was saying, listen, it's going to be just the opposite in my kingdom. He says, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. So really, Jesus was trying to disrupt hierarchical thinking here. In hierarchical thinking, we try to claw our way to the top. No matter how we get there, it's, it's about getting to the top spot and looking down at everybody else. It's about getting people to do things for you while you sit there in a position of power and authority. And Jesus is saying, listen, that's not the way it's going to be in my kingdom. Notice, Jesus doesn't correct them for wanting to be great. He's simply defining what greatness really looks like in his kingdom. Greatness isn't about clawing your way to the top. It's about humbling yourself and mixing with the lowly, insignificant, and poor, which is exactly what Jesus did throughout his life. He says, if you want to know what the, the true mark of human greatness is, it's about associating with the lowly. You know, in our world today, greatness is about Climbing your way to the top, it's about achieving, it's about gaining greatness. And so when you walk into a room, you filter the people who can't help you come up. Instead, you gravitate to the people who you think will enhance your credibility or who will open doors for you. But what Jesus says is, listen, you can't screen people like that. If you want to be great in my kingdom, you can't screen these people. Instead, you need to welcome them. You can't be cold and austere. You can't be indifferent and impassive to these people. You know, when you realize as you're talking to somebody that this person's going to be a drain, a black hole, you don't say to yourself, get me out of here. What if Jesus did that to you? What if Jesus decided that those whom he was going to save we're going to be based on this criteria. He could have saved himself a trip to earth because really there is nobody down here 
who wouldn't have been a drain on Jesus. And so Jesus says, if you want to be great in my kingdom, then you need to mix with the lowly, those who are insignificant. Now, in the parallel account in Matthew 18, Matthew adds a few statements here that aren't included that I think are pretty helpful. In verse 3, we're we're told, he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like a little child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever welcomes a child like this in my name welcomes me. So, in what ways does God want us to become like a child? Obviously, there are certain aspects of children that God does not want us to become like. I mean, you think about children, they're very self-centered, they're selfish, and God wants us to be the opposite of that. He wants us to be other-centered. He wants us to be less ego-involved. So Jesus isn't hoisting children on his shoulders and saying, this is the paragon of spiritual living. He's saying that there are certain aspects of a child that you should adopt. I think, first of all, one really interesting thing about children is that they're ready to admit their inadequacy. They're never afraid to say, I can't do something. Spend some time with a small child, and at some point, they're going to run up to you and say, fix this toy for me. I can't do this. There's no shame in that for them. Whereas when you think about adults like us, you know, years of education, experience, and maturity have helped us with small tasks that we can perform, like opening up a can of soup or operating the microwave. But oftentimes we walk around life feeling bewildered about the purpose of our life, feeling lonely because we don't get the kind of input that we need to move forward. But that's not a problem with a child. A child realizes if something is broken, they ask for help. They ask somebody to fix it. And in the same way, God wants us to come to him and admit our inadequacy And to realize that we can't fix our lives. We can't make it right. We can't make ourselves whole. We need him. Secondly, when you look at a child, they're willing to receive gifts. I've never heard a child say, oh, I could never accept this. I'm sorry. That's something that you would hear coming out of an adult's mouth. You see, adults don't really like to receive gifts. Why? Because a lot of times, they feel like it puts them in a position of indebtedness. And by being indebted to somebody, we are inferior to them. And so we are resistant to receiving gifts. Whereas when we look at children, they're elated whenever they're opening up a gift. There's no thought of that when it comes to a child. And in the same way, God wants us to stop trying to relate to him by doing good deeds to earn his approval or, or to get a right standing by, avo- uh, by avoiding bad things. Instead, God wants us to receive his grace freely. You see, the Bible says that the, the basis for which we can come to God is through what Jesus has done, that he has paid the ultimate price for us to have free access to God. In fact, Our continued access with God is reliant upon what Jesus has done. And so really, the Christian life is a life of dependency. 
It's a life of dependence and reliance on God. Finally, children are incredibly honest. You're never going to spend time wondering whether a child, a small child, is making a subtle jab at you. You're not going to sit around contemplating whether or not a child has mixed motives in what they're doing for you. Children are very honest. They'll tell you exactly whatever is rattling around in their minds. And, you know, as a father, that's one of the really, that's one of the really great things about having small children is just that open communication where my kids will just tell me whatever they're thinking about or however they're feeling. And I know that that's something that's probably going to change as they get older. They're not going to want to tell me everything. But that's the kind of closeness and honesty that God wants from us. We often think when we do things that are wrong or when we feel like we displease God that we run away from him. We try to hide things from him as if we could ever hide anything from him. And instead, God wants us to approach him with honesty. One of the things that I love about reading the Psalms is just this spectacular openness that you see from the psalmist when they express the incredible highs of joy and delight that they have in the Lord and the incredible lows of despair and anger and frustration bordering on irreverence. God wants us to be honest with him like little children are honest with us. And then finally he says, unless you change and become like a little child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless you change. What does that mean? What he's saying here is that we need to become like a little child in that we become humble. Where we start to realize, I don't have it all together that I need God. You see, most people, when they come to God, they realize, you know, I've done some bad things. I know I'm imperfect, but I need help. I need some strength. I need some guidance in my life. But I do know that I've got some spiritual money in the bank. And I know that, you know, even though I'm not perfect, I've done a lot of good things. In other words, you know, what, what I need from you, God, is I need a grant. I need some supplement. I need a cash infusion, spiritually speaking. But that's not to say that I'm like completely spiritually bankrupt, that, that I've got nothing. I'm not like a little child. I'm not helpless. And yet what God wants us to realize is that without him, we are helpless. That we can do good things and we can do some bad things, but ultimately, even the good things we do are for the wrong things. That a lot of times when we do good things, it's in order to control our lives. Or it's in order to put ourselves in a position where we can look down on others. Or maybe in some cases, we do good things because we think it can help us gain control over God to give us the things we think we deserve from him. And God says that is not humility. Humility is realizing that we're fallen. And that if we are going to be saved, we need to throw ourselves upon God's mercy that he offers us through Jesus Christ. And so really, what God wants from us is a humble heart. I want to wrap up by sharing a quote from the South African teacher and author, Andrew Murray, who says, Humility is not a thing we bring to God. It's also not a thing God gives to us. 
Humility is simply acknowledging the truth about who we are and yielding to God his rightful place. Let's pray. God, we just pray that we can grow not only in our faith, but also in humility. We want to be great, but teach us to see what true greatness is, that true greatness was embodied through your son Jesus, who didn't come here to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And I pray that our lives can embody that as well, that we can become people who serve others, who are not constantly vying for position or trying to be great in the world's eyes, but that we are aiming to be great in the way that you define. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. This has been a Dwell Community Church production.